Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. The United States Supreme Court has continued to be wrapped up in a series of issues and consequential rulings in 2023 that have led to controversy and some criticism. The court's conservative majority continues to make headlines not only for the opinions that the court has handed down, but what some critics of the court label as the ethical misdeeds of some of the court members uh, and by those sitting uh, as justices on the court. Was the Supreme Court always this controversial? And throughout history, where did U.S. Supreme Court justices from Kentucky fit into the court's overall image and philosophy? It might surprise you to learn that, uh, depending on how you count them, Kentucky has sent either 10 or 11 men to Washington as justices of the Supreme Court. One of those was Justice Louis Brandeis of Louisville. And David Miller is here to tell us more about his life and time on the court. David is a new member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. He's a retired attorney and computer professional. He's also a book publisher author, poet, writer, editor, and so much more. And we'll find out a little bit more about David as we continue our conversation. Uh, David, welcome to our microphone. Thank you, Bill. It's an honor to be here. Let's uh, jump right into Justice Louis Brandeis from Louisville and let you tell us uh, the story of his life. Certainly. I'll tell you what's interested. uh, I'm not a historian, but his life uh, I found fascinating, uh, which is why I wanted to uh, talk about him uh, through the speaker series. He was born in Louisville just uh, in 1856, and so he grew up uh, in that area in the shadow of the Civil War and, and the, the tumult after after that, uh, and he lived until 1939. Uh, so he lived uh, in some very, uh, uh, some very tumultuous times in, Amer- in America. Um, he was uh, a brilliant uh, guy. He went to uh, Harvard at the age of 18, uh, graduated at the age of 20, had the highest uh, grade point average they had ever recorded at uh, Harvard, um, and uh, set up a law practice in Boston. Um, he um, uh, was is best known for, I think, for formulating uh, the right of privacy in America. And he wrote about that. Uh, it was a ki- kind of a new concept at the time. He wrote about that first w- with a, in a law review article with a, another attorney, um, specifically about the right of privacy in, in 1890. Um, at the time, uh, America was living through an era of um, the Gilded Age, of uh, great disparity in wealth. Uh, the economy was controlled uh, by large corporations, trusts, railroad trusts, uh, and banking interests, for which there was uh, very little in the way of regulation. Um, uh, Brandeis was a progressive hero early on because he went up against those trusts. Uh, he was in the model of a Theodore Roosevelt, and of course he made a lot of powerful enemies in the in the 1890s and the early part of the uh, of the 1900s, uh, including the former president William Howard Taft, the Republican Party then, 
Um, and um, he was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1916. He was the first Jewish person who was nominated to the court. Up until that time, the uh, hearings for nominations to the court had been very quiet uh, affairs. His stretched out for six months because he had some very powerful enemies, um, as you might imagine, in the uh, in the corporate sector, uh, but also because of his religion as the first as the first person uh, of that faith uh, on the court. Um, during that time, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson nominated him to the court, and of course he stayed on through the uh, Franklin Roosevelt administration. The court at the time was not amenable to the steps that that Roosevelt wanted to take uh, to uh, to take control of the economy or to uh, uh, take the steps that he thought were needed to get the get people back to work and to rein in the banks to get some sort of stability into the banking uh, system. And so uh, Brandeis found himself dissenting a lot in the early days of his career. And uh, eventually his view and, and the other, uh, the trio of liberals on the court in the 1930s uh, swayed the court uh, so that the uh, FDR initiatives went through. And of course, I think we all know what happened during the New Deal. Um, uh, Brandeis also made his mark on the courts uh, by his expansive view of individual rights, and that is the relationship between um, the government and an, an individual. And uh, it's interesting that the things he talked about, not just in criminal law, but in civil law, we're still talking about a lot of those things now, Bill. For example, um, cameras, portable cameras were new at the time in, in that era. And so the question was, could you take a camera, walk down the street and take a stranger's uh, take a stranger's picture. Um, uh, is that an invasion of the right of privacy? Well, Brandeis argued you know, that yes, it is. Um, telephones were relatively new, for, for mm -hmm. example. And so could, uh, how about, could the government wiretap telephones? Um, how about searching an automobile? Is that different from, <laughs> from searching a, a horse rider's packets? Um, in a lot of these cases, it took until the 1950s, 1960s, the Warren court uh, to adopt, really, for Brandeis's views to become the majority uh, view. And that was sort of the high water mark of uh, criminal defense rights, of free speech rights. Uh, he wrote some very important first dissents and then opinions about what the limits uh, were, the expansive view he had of uh, what people could say without the government saying, you, you, can't, uh, you can't tell people not to sign up for the draft for example, those sorts of things. Um, so in terms of the right of privacy that, that, uh, that uh, was, he was the uh, not founder but champion of, that underlies a lot of modern life, whether it's what you are able to uh, see privately in your own home, uh, birth control, of course, abortion uh, rights. A lot of uh, his view was uh, accepted by that court, and now, of course, we're seeing a recession of those um, of those views. Back to uh, you would have to say more like a court that existed before that New Deal era court. And again, I'm not a historian, but this is how I understand that uh, his views still have are his very opinions real. been um, been referred to over the years, um, uh, written uh, about and and called upon uh, as. Um, watermarks of uh, uh, proving arguments throughout uh, the time uh, 
that he was on the court? Yes, very much so, very much so. Um, I went to law school in um, Florida, but moved to here for a job right after uh, law school in 1986. So uh, it's our adopted uh, adopted uh, state. But all during law school, of course, it was unavoidable uh, uh, how his influence and the clarity of his writing and the influence of his writing in so many different fields. His name uh, showed up again and again. Sometimes even if you disagreed with him, you were obliged to understand what he was saying in order to frame your argument against him. After um, I practiced a few years and then became the um, assistant director of continuing legal education at UK, and during that time started work on a master's in uh, communications, what I was interested in, in under, understanding was the legal ramifications of personal computing and what was then we saw was going to be the internet. And so the communications, uh, the law of communications, the law of privacy, all of those things that Brandeis was talking about in the teens and 20s were very much central to our idea of what uh, the Internet should become, what personal computing you know, should become. Um, and I'll give you one, ex one other example, if I, if I may. Um, during the 1980s, we saw computers get more and more, home computers get more and more powerful, powerful right? And so until that time, the government had a monopoly on powerful computing. And so if somebody wanted to make a code at their home com on their home computer, the government really didn't have a, uh, really didn't have any problem overcoming that code. Well, as computers got more and more power powerful, home computers be, uh, began to be uh, you began to be able to use those to create codes that the government could not crack. And so. Again, is that's a that's a Brandeis question. Uh, to what extent should you be willing to give up those uh, that that privacy in order for the government to stop, for example, terrorists or criminals um, of some sort? Um, the the answer that has come out of all this, we see WhatsApp, we see other encrypted applications mm. all over the world, which um, protects reporters, protects political dissidents in certain countries, but also allows criminals and and uh, others to evade mm -hmm. you know so uh, bill is like ralph waldo emerson said everything has two handles <laughs> so. what do you remember the particular case uh, that he uh, uh, was before him uh, to make a decision uh, on that well uh, he i don't know what he would have said about uh, about the computer law and and that there's a a whole string of decisions about um, about wiretapping, and uh, the first one is probably the example. Uh, the first example that I, that I can think of is probably the, um, and the name of the case escapes me, but the one about the uh, portable cameras. Mm -hmm. Look at the look at the ubiquity now sure. of webcams and, and mm -hmm. stick-on cam. You know all, mm -hmm. uh, those. Um, I could give you a, a cameras everywhere. Cameras everywhere. So uh, those these are very those are very much still in play. I won't mm -hmm. bore our readers with you know going through um, case yeah. by case, but yeah. yeah. What during all this time that he was um, either on the court or during uh, breaks uh, in the summer after they finished uh, sessions, did he still uh, continue a a connection to Louisville? Uh, he would visit back here and uh, to, to work backwards. Most Supreme Court justices' papers uh, and effects end up in uh, some private 
library and usually at a, either a, attached to a larger school. His, uh, he wanted to have returned to the University of, of Louisville, and they are there. Of course, the, the School of Law there is named after him. He and his wife are actually buried under the portico. Uh, hmm. at the uh, School of Law there. So uh, he didn't get back as much as I know he would have liked to back in that era of travel. It was, you know, was enormously diffi- uh, difficult. Uh, but he still, he maintained that connection certainly throughout his life to Louisville. What are, are the other uh, remarkable uh, um, periods of his life? Um, and was, uh, what sort of uh, we hear so many labels today about the court, uh, activist court, uh, constitu- strict constitutionalist, um, uh, uh, the interpretation of the language. Um, uh, what, did, did, did anybody attempt to put a label on uh, Justice Brandeis? Well, uh, he certainly put uh, a la- put labels upon himself. Uh, he was close to President uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, um, and that's why he was nominated to the court in the first place. He became eventually became an advisor to uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt um, and was considered a progressive vote on the court in favor of Roosevelt. But at the same time, um, he if he didn't, for example, one Roosevelt initiative would have actually centralized control of a lot of uh, of a lot of industry in America. Well, Justice Brandeis, one of his one of his lines was he, he hated you know bigness. He wanted uh, he hated big corporations. He hated big banks, mm. and so he voted and argued successfully against that those that first version of FDR's National Recovery Acts because it would have centralized more. What he uh, asked for and mm. got, and uh, you might think of it as political lobbying, but what he asked for and got was a different version of the NRA which uh, emphasized competition, emphasized breaking up you know, the, the trust into smaller, trusts into smaller pieces, which then can compete with each other, rather than having the government you know, control that. Um, the current court, you ask about uh, the, the, the current court, the majority, um, I, I think it's safe to say, think of themselves, describe themselves as originalists. Um, look at the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and look at the plain text of it, I think Brandeis would have said that's that's ridiculous. I mean, what would the founding fathers have thought about a portable Browning camera? You know, mm-hmm. what would they have thought about uh, uh, the first of all, the uh, telegraph, much less the telephone, and so, you know, uh, uh, so on. I think um, Justice Brandeis was, was n- did not have any kind of blinders on. I think he under, understood that uh, it was a living document, and that was why he was able to pull the court in, toward his uh, moder- more modernistic, I guess you could say, interpretation. Do you have any idea how he would have, uh, what his thoughts were on the Second Amendment? I'm, I, I wouldn't, you should ask a historian that to, to get an accurate, accurate picture, picture of that, because I, I really am not sure of it. But it, without testing uh, your uh, thoughts uh, from a historical standpoint, knowing that he was a progressive, um, and, and on some of his other rulings, would he have interpreted uh, the language uh, as we know it can be um, read by uh, more than two sides? Uh, how, how would you think he might have um, uh, looked at um, at gun laws? Uh, this is just a surmise on yeah. on, on my part, but. Um, 
I said a moment ago that he understood it to be a, a, a living uh, document. Uh-huh. I think that the the Second Amendment, as I understand mm-hmm. it, and I'm not a you know a scholar in this area at all, but as I understand it, the um, understanding of the Second Amendment was fairly stable up until a generation ago. It, yeah. there, there really wasn't a lot of um, uh, of argument mm-hmm. uh, about it, and so the expansive uh, argument in favor of it, I guess you could call it an expansive gun rights argument, is really more of a uh, modernist creation. I don't think Brandeis would argue that the Constitution and Bill of Rights has to wax, portions of it have to wax and wane with circumstances somewhat. I don't think, I just think he would have disagreed with the conclusion <laughs> that yeah. might have come out of it. What would you say um, if you um, just had an opinion uh, on what would be his most controversial case or maybe even ruling or maybe dissent, uh, whether he was um, uh, on one side or the other? What, what, what stands out in your mind of the research that you've done? Well, there's, there are so many dissents that then turned, oh. turned into uh, accepted uh, accepted. Wisdom, the sense that uh, uh, that he was, he would start out by himself, uh, and then there would be another iteration of the case. He might attract a couple of other people. He might uh, he might uh, then plant a seed that, and this happens a lot in, in Supreme Court opinions, plant a seed that wouldn't uh, come to fruition for another generation, but it would be found by uh, by a subsequent justice as a basis for. Uh, you know, for uh, finding, to take them where they wanted to go <laughs> sure. anyway, to mm-hmm. show that there was some, at least some uh, philosophical underpinning. Yeah, them, so. yeah. Well, um, interesting. Uh, David, did he, uh, did he die in uh, office? Did he come back to, uh, to tell us about his retirement? Well, he retired in uh, 1939, and uh, he and his wife were, were, seemed very happy in Boston. They were very active outdoors people. Uh, one interesting thing is he was in, uh, very much a supporter of a Zionist uh, state, what eventually became the state of Israel. Hmm. Um, he worked to, uh, he was, you ask if he was somewhat political. Well, in, in a sense, he was in, in, in that sense, because he would fu- help fundraise, he would make speeches and so on. Uh, of course, at the time, that uh, in that interwar period, no one knew what was going to happen, you know, with with uh, under the rise of of, of Hitler, um, and he did not live to actually see what you know what the, the outcome of the Second World War. Uh, they were very happy in Boston, as far as I know. They never returned to Louisville to live, um, but that was always home to them. Would knowing what you know about his activism after he left the court. Do you see in any of his opinions uh, some of that um, creeping into uh, his writing? Um, let me let me back up and clarify that he um, uh, retired from the court in 1939, and he died less than two years later, I believe. So he really didn't have a long post period. His actual activism for his, uh, for his Zionist state was while he was on the court. Oh, really? While yes. he was on the court? Yeah. Ah. yeah. And so he had to tread somewhat carefully, but uh, tread he did uh, nonetheless. Um, in, the, in the legal world, one of the things that uh, stood out in law, uh, in, in legal study, is something called the Brandeis Brief. And so earlier on, before Brandeis uh, became such a high-profile uh, and uh, productive lawyer, energetic lawyer, 
Uh, most briefs were uh, fairly succinct, and they were pitched more to the predilections of, of the makeup of the courts at the time. Well, one of his innovations was what's called the Brandeis Brief, in which he, for particular topics, reached out to social scientists, reached out to what now we would call data scientists, and pulled in uh, and pulled in lots of supporting material for his brief uh, to overwhelm, I guess, the pre-existing knowledge that uh, a judge or justice might have, and to say, well, here here's the steps to, that'll get you there. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just the conclusions that we're uh, asserting. Here's the steps that will get you. So that certainly is one of his best-known and most uh, lasting influences. David Miller is our guest on our Think Humanities podcast today. David is a a new member of our Speakers Bureau and available uh, to hit the road all over the Commonwealth. Uh, If you're interested in uh, talking with David or any of the other uh, many members of our Speakers Bureau, from beekeepers to musicians to uh, scholars uh, to Uh, talks on uh, just about anything uh, under the sun, Uh, please take a look at our uh, Kentucky Humanities website at kyhumanities.org. Go to Programs, pull down the tab for Speakers Bureau, and read about this wonderful group of people who are there for you, uh, your civic club, your uh, Sunday school class, uh, your organization of uh, any sort. Um, They're terrific uh, to listen to and to learn from. And uh, David is one of those. We're going to take a short break and um, talk with David a little bit more about some of the other aspects of his life. But first, we want to recognize and say thanks to our great friends at Spalding University for underwriting Think Humanities. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing prepares students to publish, produce, and find professional success. Alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film, and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. David Miller is our guest today on our Think Humanities podcast. Uh, David is uh, in our Speakers Bureau uh, with a a talk that he's ready to deliver to your organization on Judge Louis uh, Brandeis, Justice Louis Brandeis, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, who uh, is uh, the University of Louisville Law School, is named after him. A fascinating story, a Kentuckian uh, one of uh, several who uh, served uh, on the Supreme Court as a, a justice. And uh, David is uh, full of information about uh, Justice Brandeis, and we'll be glad to tell you about that. But if you twist his arm just a little bit, he might uh, be able to share with you a little bit more about his life. He told you in the first segment about um, uh, going to law school, uh, about uh, going to the University of Kentucky for a a communications degree and working in uh, the computer um, uh, area for uh, a business or two, and uh, he's had a a varied life. If you look at his website, I think all you have to do is uh, Google David Miller. It pops right up, doesn't it? David Thurman Miller. David Thurman Miller. You will see that he's also an extraordinary uh, writer, a prolific uh, 
uh, a person of the word with several publications. He uh, publishes a, uh, a poem uh, every Friday or just yeah. about every Friday. They're, they're, they're trunk items. I don't try to write one every week. But, uh, uh, and they're, they're great to see on his, uh, on his uh, website uh, the, that he, he writes a, a blog. He has excerpts from uh, uh, some of the books he's written, and I'm going to talk to him about some of those uh, right now. Uh, David, how did uh, this, this writing life uh, from, from law to computer science uh, lead you to this uh, prolific uh, writing career? Well, it's, uh, uh, it's just something that I always did. You know, the, um, I had a writing teacher when I was much younger who said, uh, if you want to be a writer, you know how you'd be a writer? You sit down and write, you know, you, you just do it. And so um, even if no one's expected to read it, you, you sit down and do it, and eventually uh, uh, it's, it's out there. I've been very fortunate that some of the things I've written uh, have uh, ended up uh, with various presses, uh, I uh, did a book with uh, St. Martin's with uh, my father's memoir, uh, Southern Illinois University Press, uh, a few others, uh, and I have my own, my own micro press for books that are uh, that I think are worthwhile being out there. You know, uh, Bill, there's a great uh, American tradition of do-it-yourself things from, from Thomas Paine through the zines of the 80s and up to today. But um, so if, if I find something interesting— uh, I don't, it doesn't matter if it sells 50 or 100 books. It's nice if it does. Um, I worked with a retired UK professor on a book that he had written about uh, pedagogy, about teaching. Uh, I worked with the Future Farmers of America of Kentucky uh, on a history of their organization. Um, I'm just uh, putting out a, a, a book about nutrition and natural healing by a faith-based group. So just interesting things to work on. But again, that goes back to that uh, teacher I had who said, if you want to be a writer, sit down and write. So I just try to do that. Do you write every day? Uh, most every day. I try to write a little bit. Uh, do you day. have a particular time of day that you write? Morning. Yeah, got to have some coffee and uh, write the morning. Uh, every, I, I try to do one essay uh, or piece of a memoir or something uh, once a week, uh, every Wednesday. And um, so I'll work on that a couple of mornings uh, in addition to the other things that I'm, that I'm working on. So yeah, mornings are, are best. You know, I noticed one uh, descriptive word uh, that um, was used uh, in one of the, uh, the, the book reviews, I think, uh, or the book descriptions, a compiler. Uh, David Miller was the compiler. Uh, I can imagine what that is, but I've never seen it used quite like that. What, what did you do as the compiler? Well, um, Were you the gatherer of the information? The gatherer of the information and, and um, the editor. I, I added some uh, material of my own. The one you're probably uh, thinking of is the Marriott Lee, the Appalachian plays. Uh, could I speak about her? Oh, sure, please. I was yeah. going to ask you yeah, about sure. that. Because I think uh, although you wrote a piece for our Kentucky Humanities Magazine a couple of years ago, and you wrote it on Marriott Lee, and and I, uh, although it it's a well-read publication, and we're very proud of it, uh, not everybody uh, knows who she is. Tell tell us about her. She is uh, just the opposite in a way of uh, Louis Brandeis. Um, very few people know uh, about her, and if they do, uh, it's probably because she was one of uh, uh, the short story master Flannery O'Connors. Um, they wrote hundreds of letters back and forth, and they were fast friends until O'Connors death in, I think, 1965, from the late 50s until 1965. Mary Lee was born in 
uh, Covington. He, she was the daughter of a prominent uh, lawyer slash real estate developer who was responsible for much of what now uh, is Park Hills and uh, up near Cincinnati. Uh, and her mother was a um, classical singer and poet. Well, uh, Merritt was born in 1933, I believe it was. They, she grew up uh, uh, up in that area, but she was different. Marriott was very different. She, uh, they were fairly well-to-do. They sent her to Wellesley. That did not work out for her. She was um, the, the, this uh, highly intelligent, six-foot-tall, tomboyish uh, woman who took no guff from anybody, I, I think it's uh, fair to say. She switched over to or transferred to Columbia um, for uh, where she studied under the theologian Paul Tillich and anthropologist Margaret Mead just because those two areas interested her. And um, where she saw those coming together was in theater. But she hated what she saw as uh, uh, the European shadow of, uh, I'm sorry, the American shadow of European theater. She didn't think it was honest, you know, it was just so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was living in East Harlem, New York, and one of her fellow, she, she was getting, a, had finished her, her Master's of Divinity. One of her fellow theologians said, well, can't you find anything that suits you? She remembered uh, these old mystery plays, which peasants used to put on back in the Middle Ages, where they would enact, they would dress up and enact uh, mm. biblical Bible stories. Um, and she thought, well, I could do that with the people here. So she walks out onto the streets of East Harlem, uh, talks to people, gets their stories, gets them to do, uh, she turns that those into plays, gets them to act in her plays, and does, um, and sets up a stage roadside in the middle of this city. And you had people hanging from fire escapes. Anyway, it was a sensation. She uh, was written up in time, variety. She was on television, all, all this. She was considered the mother of street theater. Um, and so she ends up getting tired of living in New York City, uh, moves out of there, and around 1970 moves to West Virginia, the wilds of West Virginia, which is where I'm from. I just happened to meet her. She hired me to, uh, and she was trying to do the same thing in the country she had done in the city, take local stories, turn them into uh, plays, which would have an honesty which she didn't see in commercial theater. So she's working with a bunch of teenagers. I'm hired to... Uh, wrangle the teenagers to act and be the musical director. Mm. And that was the start of a, of a friendship until her death in 1989. Mm. Um, she's pretty, she's well-known in theater circles, but her work has never been collected until I yeah. put together, when you say a compiler, I went to the Merritt Lee archives in, at uh, West Virginia University. I still had my old, old files from the, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my old professors actually was her biographer, William French from West Virginia University. And he had passed away, but he still kept his files and and his widow made them available. So collecting all those things, I put out this book, which is her four main Appalachian plays, along with her uh, gloss on them, her author's notes, and then Dr. French's scholarly notes about it. So Hmm. by compiler, you know, that's what a compiler does. Put all this together, yeah. Um, 
by the way, uh, to our listeners, uh, we're, we're pronouncing, or David is pronouncing Marriott. It, it is spelled, was that her given name? No. M-A-R-Y-A-T. She, she was, um, in her typically rebellious way, she was born Mary Attaway Lee. But as a teenager, she said, don't call me Mary. Don't call me Mary Attaway. Call me Marriott. <laughs> and so for the rest mm-hmm. of her, her life, she was known as as yeah. Marriott, yes. Well, tell me uh, real quickly about your other uh, publications, um, all somewhat different um, uh, fiction and, uh, well, no, they're all nonfiction, aren't That's they? That's correct. Yes, yes. Yeah. right. Uh, so Chicago Heights. Real quickly, that was uh, the story that was a memoir that I wrote uh, based on interviews with um, this uh, man who came and said, have I got a story for you? And boy, did he. He uh, was born in 1950 in West Virginia, poverty-stricken family. His Italian uncle takes him to Chicago, specifically Chicago Heights, in the mid-60s and uh, gets him a job, gives him a job cleaning, sweeping up a bar. And eventually, in the next few years, he uh, is a gopher, right-hand man, not a made man, but he gets in with the mob, the outfit, which ruled Chicago at the time. And he was a bystander, not literally, but he knows the story behind the, uh, and the book tells, the Chicago Heights, Little Joe College, tells the story of one of the most famous gangland murders of all, the murder of Sam Giancana, mm-hmm. uh, who was an, uh, an associate of of uh, the, the Kennedys, believe it or not. Uh, Marilyn Monroe spent mm-hmm. her last night on Earth with Sam Giancana. Mm. Uh, he was found mysteriously murdered mm. uh, in Chicago, in uh, Oak Park near uh, Chicago. And uh, Charlie Hager, who mm-hmm. is the person this memoir is about, was peripherally involved in these events. So this is his, his telling, and uh, it's, as far as I can tell, it's mm-hmm. the most likely uh, account we'll, we'll get of uh, Sam Giancana's mm-hmm. murder. And then you wrote um, a couple of things about your father. Well, actually, that's uh, Earned in Blood was a book that my father, uh, I helped him write. And it's about an Appalachian boyhood. Uh, he grew up in southern West Virginia, very poor, very huge family. Then he served in, in so, uh, one of the most famous Marine Corps outfits. He joined the Marines in 1939, well before Pearl Harbor. And he served uh, in one of the most famous Marine outfits in some of the worst fighting, Guadalcanal, New Britain, of World War II. He came back, he taught at the officer's candidate uh, school uh, for Marine, uh, while the, the, the war was uh, in its last year. Then he came home and worked in the mines for uh, the underground mines in West Virginia for another 37 years, I think. This is an American wow. life. And um, so I helped him write this, and I also said, I took it to um, St. Martin's Press, a very mm-hmm. big press, and mm-hmm. uh, they published it in 2013. Uh, they were extremely, they did an extremely good job on it. They flew us all around the country. I took him to New York City and to uh, uh, Niagara Falls uh, for his the first time in his life with the advance money. Uh, they flew us to Florida. We got to go. Anyway, uh, he passed oh, nice. away a few, a few years ago, but... Yeah. Uh, uh, St. Martin's did the uh, hardcover book, which after it and it sold well. After that was done, it, it did a uh, they did a paperback version. It did fine. Eventually, with large presses, they uh, it runs out, you know, being worthwhile. So I bought the rights to it back, and I published it through my own small press, uh-huh. Bacanti Books, and a second edition is coming out now. Um, and Joe Gatton, a local actor, is uh, we're doing an audio book. He is narrating it. Uh, uh, for me, that's hope to have uh, both the second edition of the book and that audio book up on Audible uh, uh, before the year's out. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, so, you're just uh, involved <laughs> in 
so many interesting things. David, uh, you are certainly a, a Kentuckian. Um, no, nobody's going to deny that, although uh, you're, you're uh, uh, I guess we claim uh, Appalachian heritage uh, with West Virginia, um, but uh, law school in Florida and all of that. Just your general observations about where we are as a society, and um, do, you, do you find people are reading and writing as much as ever? Uh, do you, uh, are you in a, um, um, a group of people that are, are still enjoying the written word? Uh, or are we all consumed by uh, negativism and things that are going on around us? Uh, uh, these problems we discussed earlier in the podcast about the, the Supreme Court and uh, rulings that are coming down, we see, seem to be at a at a real sense of the, since the pandemic, uh, sort of a, uh, a lot of people think a questionable place in America's uh, road ahead. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, to some extent, that's uh, well above my pay grade. Um, I, I think that we're still, at least from what I can see, people are still uh, reading. They're reading a lot. And, and I've been fortunate to have the friendship of a number of people, a number of the writers uh, and poets that you, you've had on here have been very uh, encouraging, and I'm I'm very happy to see them continuing to work and to and to create. It is worrisome that the uh, speaking personally that the some of the battles that we thought were settled I think are now not just settled, but we can't even agree on what the questions are or the common basis for for coming to some sort of you know some sort of conclusion. Um, I think we all worry about about the extremism. Uh, I think we all worry about, uh, as a computer professional, I worry about, mis- I've always worried about misinformation. Um, I certainly now worry about uh, AI-assisted uh, assisted, um, misinformation. So there's, there's plenty to uh, be concerned about. At the same time, I see, I see um, as I say, people reading, people writing, and enormous amounts of kindness uh, in the world. I think uh, uh, Lexington is, and as Ada Lamone was saying, the, I think one thing that helps Lexington is how, how green and beautiful it is. And, and uh, a uh, uh, friend that moved down from one of the northern states said, you know, people are just really friendly here. They're just, just really nice. So, um, you know, what's the line about, uh, it's either Sting or one of the, one of the mystic poets about how uh, uh, people go crazy in congregations, but they get better one by one. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. one-on-one, I think we seem to be yeah. doing well, and that's what I think uh, I try to focus on. Well, good. That's a, uh, uh, an optimistic view, uh, full of uh, gratitude for where you are and what you're doing. And again, uh, thank you for being uh, a uh, supporter and, a, and a, uh, uh, a person who's been involved with Kentucky Humanities, and, and now even more so, and uh, for being a guest on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.